All right, welcome everybody today to the Learn With Lowell show. I'm your host, Lowell. As many of you know, we talk to experts, scientists, and artists every week. Uh, today, we're joined with George Church, which is interesting in particular because this marks when this episode is going to go up in uh, the beginning of March. It will mark the beginning of my fifth year doing the podcast, and George was there during the first year. So I just want to, I think that's pretty cool. And George has a, a huge rap sheet that would probably take me an hour and a half just to say it. Um, but and people should know it, but I'll have like a screen uh, rolling down his, his, his uh, history and background. But uh, George, welcome back to the show. Uh, it's great to be back. Thank you all. Yeah. Uh, so first question is, uh, so I, I was sitting wondering, what is it like to be you with all the things that you're doing and all the, the pressures that you have to do a great job, even just the stuff you put on yourself? And so I was wondering, um, how often do you think and just like take a step back and think about how um, you went from like, just a, a regular scientist to the point where you are now, where the measure of your impact is in millions, if not billions of lives over the course of like 10 years, 20 years, like the, the impact of your work is just so significant. And maybe that, that maybe that's the one of the purposes of humility is so you don't think about that <laughs> stuff too much. Uh, I mean, I certainly do feel a responsibility to, to take, you know, whatever uh, education and opportunities have been provided and turn them into something that's, you know, pay it forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then uh, just, to, I think that's a great opportunity to jump in with a fan question. Um, so I'll just read this verbatim because I suck at uh, par paraphrasing. So George is involved in multiomics, gene editing, gene therapies, epigenetics, AI delivery, like I said, your draft sheet. Uh, do you think that we have the whole picture or a relative whole picture of biology, or do you think there's still unknowns to be discovered in terms of biology or rejuvenation, that type of stuff? Well, I'm guessing the question is about big unknowns. So there are obviously yeah, yeah, yeah. millions of little unknowns to be known to, to, that, that will get pe people excited. I mean, millions of things that will get the public excited even. So, so not that little, but really big things uh i i i i would have to say that uh a lot of that will a lot of really big things in the future will be synthetic rather than analytic mm. that is to say there's a finite number of things to be discovered and we discover them kind of in, in order of their importance like importance could be abundance of a species on the planet or uh pathological impact on humans that sort of thing and so, so what happens, it comes kind of a successful approximation where we've gotten everything. But in terms of synthesis, there's no limit. I mean, we, you know, mm -hmm. until we know how to, you know, use synthetic biology to create new universes, we're not, we're not anywhere done, anywhere near done. So uh, I think there's a lot of big surprises in the future and, and some of them will be, will be reading and some of them will be writing. A lot mm -hmm. of them will be writing. The, uh, there's a, a great Neil deGrasse Tyson quote where it says, like, the more you know, the more the surface area of your ignorance expands. And so <laughs> is there is there an area in particular that you feel, not in a negative way, but like ignorant of, like, you're like, wow, you know, like, there's so much I don't know about it in terms of like, you know, biology and synthetic biology. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there, there my, my uh, ignorance surface area is expanding at the speed of light, I think. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, I think the biggest thing we don't know anything about is, and that includes me, is uh, extraterrestrial life. It, it, it has the biggest delta between there may be zero <laughs> to there may be hundreds of billions of uh, 
of life uh, planets, planets with life like ours and not like ours. So I think that's the probably the, the biggest unknown. I don't think we'd be completely shocked to find that it's zero or completely shocked to find out that it's trillions of stars and planets. Um, but the details will, will probably surprise us, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like the weirdest thing is if we were to go out into space and then like, and it's not like so far where you, uh, I think like mathematically, like if you go far enough, you start seeing the same things as ourselves or something like how the math works. But uh, if we go like the next star system and like everyone looks like same as us, that'd be so weird. It's like we must have been like seated somewhere or something. Yeah, well, panspermia is a, yeah. a, is a likely mechanism. Uh, we know that there have been, you know, many thousands of rocks that have passed between Earth and Mars uh, over time. Some of those may have contained early life forms, some of which may have survived. Uh, but but yeah, if we go far enough away, uh, the chances of contact are extraordinarily small, and so they'd be independent. Mm-hmm. And then... Um... So you have many different projects that we, you know, have alluded to. Is there something that you're working on right now that you're particularly excited about? Like you, you have you have so much on your plate, but at the same time, um, like not not even like, yeah. Is there something in particular that you're working on that you're like, wow, this is really cool? Like you're like really like you know the difference between like I'm um, like you know checking boxes versus like you're really excited about developing something. Yeah, I have a tendency to stay away from checking boxes and uh, <laughs> yeah. and incremental stuff if I possibly mm-hmm. can. Uh, yeah, every now and then, you're, you you know, a previous revolution, either from my lab or some other one, just demands uh, applications or incremental, you know, big incremental things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and in fact, some of our biggest incremental, our, sorry, our biggest changes have been, you know, the product of lots of increments. You know, for example, a reduction in cost of sequencing by 20 million mm-hmm. fold was the product of a bunch of two folds. Uh, maybe came in every few weeks or months. Um, but to your question about what it's a, it's a popular question is like, which of your kids do you like the best? Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I would say probably the one that is most impactful is, you know, when the genie gives you one wish, you ask for more wishes. And so the hmm. equivalent for science is uh, asking for more years of research, hmm. more youthful healthy years. Uh, and, and so we have a number of related projects, both in my lab and in my, uh, alumni, uh, companies that are aimed at, at, um, you know, longer, healthier, um, years. So that's, that's one. Another one that very, that I've been excited about for decades is, um, is recoding or you know multiplex editing and recoding of genomes so that we can from among other things make organisms are resistant to all viruses and that finally paid off this year we have the first example of an organism that we think is re- resistant to all viruses uh, and and uh and we tested this by doing you know field work getting a bunch of new you know thousands of new phages and and having very sensitive assays for for replication and, and found none. So, um, so that's another one. Uh, and there are plenty of plenty more. Uh, you know, the, yeah. the, getting a code for differentiation, in other words, a code that tells us how to get to any place in development, both young and old, backwards and forwards, 
uh, I think we're making progress on that. So that's very exciting. Uh, mm -hmm. Sequencing I, I everybody on the planet is another one. Uh, mm -hmm. and I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah. How um, with the improvements in uh, sequencing, what would be the cost of sequencing 8 billion people? Like, is it is that actually like doable? Uh, it's uh, it's totally doable, and the 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 cost. Uh, let's say that let's say the the cost of an item depends on how much you get back, right? So it's like mm, yeah. you know you get a, you get a uh, um, kickback or something like that, or you get or you have an investment and then you get a return on an investment. And my estimate right now is the the the, the genomes are about three hundred dollars each now for very high quality mm. diploid genome, which is not the original genome project, uh, which is not diploid. Uh, anyway, it's about $300. It'll probably be $100 within a year or two. Um, but the return on that investment is on the order of $10,000 or more on average. So for some people, you'll get nothing back. For other people, you get a million dollars back. Uh, in savings uh, for the for the healthcare system, whether that's a mm. government system or insurance system, or some combination, that's the return on investment. So actually, it wouldn't cost anything to sequence everybody on the planet. It would it would it would result in a net gain. Uh, is you know, and I, I think there's a lot there's a lot there's a growing amount of economic mm -hmm. modeling that, that supports that. Yeah, it sounds like the the Apollo program where people always say like, oh, we spent, put a lot of money into it, but we, the return on investment was like for every $1, we got like 12 or $13 back. Yeah. Like that's a great deal. Just like yeah. you don't notice it in the moment because people are like, what about ism about everything? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So that even though we haven't gone back to the moon and you could say, well, you know, that was nothing. That was a wash. Uh, you know, it was one of the most expensive projects uh, in history, uh, right up there with the Manhattan Project. But we did, even though we didn't go back to the moon, we got GPS satellites, we got mm -hmm. other satellites, and uh, um, uh, you know, variety of the telecommunication satellites. So those three alone were were, were some of the biggest uh, ticket items uh, in in return on investment. So yeah, yeah, and then um, the the making organisms so that they can't be like virus proof is like how I'm gonna summarize it. Um, what was the organism? I don't think I read about this. Was it, did you uh, get in pigs? It, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, a bioarchive preprint that will be a nature paper soon. Um, mm, okay. accepted. Um, it, uh, um, uh, it, the, the organism is E. coli. Um, which mm. has a pretty a, a particularly severe virus problem. There, there, there are a huge number of characterized and uncharacterized uh, viruses. In contrast to, to like the second favorite uh, microbe, industrial microbe, I would say is uh, yeast, baker's yeast. Mm -hmm. And baker's yeast has essentially no virus problem. Um, I mean, that's just evolutionarily. So, so E. coli has enormous one, yeast has very little. They're both the top among the top two industrial microbes. But I would say that most mi industrial microbes fall into the E. coli category. I mean, they have virus problems. So for example, almost everything that's in the air dairy industry, yogurt, cheese, so mm -hmm. forth, all those microorganisms have virus problems. In fact, that's one of the reasons, that one of the first applications of CRISPR was in the dairy industry um, because yeah. it had such a big virus problem. It did, um, still not, still not did, solved, but it was certainly, it was a motivation. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still waiting for them to put up uh, a, the past year statue, the giant milk thing that we talked about like five years ago. On because um, you're on, I think like the the road that's near. I hope this isn't doxing, like where you where you work, but like there's like a road nearby called Pasteur Street or something, like the pasteurization guy. And I think like five years ago we were talking about like we should get a giant like milk carton to like symbolize like his street and everything. Um, My my address at at Harvard uh, Medical School is Avenue Louis Pasteur, mm -hmm. Um, and we do have a giant milk carton not on Avenue Louis Pasteur, but uh, down in downtown Boston. it's it's in some tourist section, you know, mm-hmm. where, where they have a, a few museums, the children's museum and the computer museum. I'm not quite sure what the milk is all about. I think it's a place <laughs> where you can get ice cream. <laughs> mm-hmm. They should move it down to your 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 street, uh, given the what the business is up to, and, yeah. and a, a giant uh, wine bottle as well while they're at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, for uh, so with viruses, how do how do we know that the virus is just like won't see that as a potential food source and adapt to find it. Like how, how, how can we certain that they won't wow. just make new viruses? Right. So, um, the, the way we did it is we sw- for, for two codons out of the 64 mm-hmm. triplets, um, mm-hmm. we swapped, uh, the amino acid from serine to leucine. So normally these two would be serine and now they're leucine and the 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 host the E. coli host was in on the game and so we we swapped them around so that the host is completely unaffected the virus was excluded from this normally there would be co-evolution where for every step that the bacteria would Mm -hmm. take the virus would take this you know a comp a complementary step and would keep up with it but we took it offline and made uh thousands of changes about twenty thousand changes and now the virus has every time it sees those two codons, which is quite frequently serine, these two serine codons are, are common in every every protein. That means every protein has a mixture of serine and leucine at every place this occurs. So it means every protein is broken in multiple ways. And so the only way to get them back to where it's at all functional would be to have some kind of uh, way of editing all those sites, this kind of the same way the host was without intelligence. Um, and not edit all the other ones so instead and the level mm-hmm. of mutagenesis that you would need to get that level of editing would kill kill it in other places so, mm-hmm. so it's it's hard for it to escape now there is the possibility of making new viruses so viruses in a certain sense are as little as a polymerase that it got from the host ca- encapsulated in some way in proteins plus lipids or plus or minus lipids uh, and so that could happen, um, but uh, I think it would take a long time. Uh, mm. We've never, I don't think we've ever observed one going from scratch. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if one did arise, then we would, you know, maybe there are things we can do that prevent the polymerases from being co-opted or, um, and we don't, we also don't know how capsids form spontaneously, but probably there's all kinds of ways to aggregate proteins and they just become more and more symmetric, um, as time goes by. Yeah. And then I think, um, like using the software analogy, like if potentially if there was something like that, you could just offer like a, a software update to the biology, like anyone who's using that type of thing. And then it would like, you could always stay out of step right. if there was a virus. Ab- was, like, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Oh, did you say something? Nope. Okay, good. I just always like to make sure I'm, I'm listening. Um, when you develop technology like this, 
uh, I feel like there's got to be like a hundred companies that just kind of like follow you around and just like wait for it to come out and then they buy up the IP. Um, to, to what extent is like, not that like bother you, but in the sense that like um, if everyone's, I think in like the 70s or 80s, like there's like this myth myth that like uh, there was an electric car and like some oil people built, uh, bought it up so that no one could have electric cars. So um, how, how do you make sure that like no one just buys up the IP and like puts it on a shelf? Granted, like I guess if you sell it to like Ginkgo Bioworks, like the E. coli stuff would just fit into their program and then they would just love it so much. But um, how do you make sure that like the IP actually goes to good people like that are actually going to use it? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. Uh, there are two ways. Uh, one mm -hmm. is that Harvard usually almost always puts a clause in the agreement that says if you don't meet the following milestones, oh, okay. the uh, IP returns to Harvard and they don't return your money. <laughs> so it's actually it's Harvard's advantage to, mm. to monitor it and make sure that they do meet the milestones. And the milestones are usually crafted to be pretty easy to observe. The second mm. way that, that, that one avoids this is by um, spinning off companies rather than being reactive to companies on the outside buying it. You spin out a company that, that is formed by the postdocs that invented it, and they're highly motivated to see it succeed because it, basically it's their entire life up to that point. Their entire professional life has been developing this technology. And if anything, they're biased in favor of it where they, they think it's the greatest thing, where it may or may not be. Um, but a big company, when it buys up stuff, it's because a lot of big companies have lost their ability to innovate. Uh, mm -hmm. They'll even admit this. Uh, I've been inside such big companies uh, as a board of directors. And, and, and the way they innovate is by buying companies that have already innovated. So, so basically, uh, they, don't know, they don't see it coming. Uh, when when mm -hmm. Harvard says, hey, we have this IP available, they don't see the value of it mm -hmm. the way that a postdoc that invented it would. And even if they did, uh, Harvard's going to tend to favor the, the 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 young startup because eventually it will get out either on its own or by being acquired by one of these big companies at a later date. Makes sense. And then uh, just uh, when people are transitioning from academia to the startup, like the postdocs, like narrowing in, uh, since you're in so mo so many different projects, are there are there problems? Are, are there things that they need to adjust? Because like the academia. From the from I haven't worked in academia, but I'm totally it's kind of like it's one mode of success, like how to do something. But then startups like it's entirely different; they have to be faster, like whatever. Um, what what transitions or what what new skills that they have to develop uh, to make that jump successfully, so they can build something and without it like you know crashing and burning. Yeah, I think that's a great question, and it hap it it it's um, you know I think some environments are better for that transition than others. So so mm -hmm. in over the years, we've accumulated a bunch of alumni that have done this successfully, and they mm. either inspire from a distance or up close, uh, they will ins inspire the next generation and tell them where the landmines are and where the pots of gold are. And uh, that, that, that all helps. Uh, it helps them know whether they want to go into, uh, join a big company, form their own company, or stay in academia or something else. Um, and then, so if they have the prepared mind, that's, that's a, a big part of it. The, the main thing is that academics are, uh, the job is to spend money and companies mm. is to make money. And that's a big cultural difference. Uh, you know, also there's, there tends to be a lot more 
uh, deadlines and milestones in companies, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, more productivity, a uh, little more focus on incremental improvements rather than radical um, risk taking. Um, but each of these is, you know, is some people like it one way, some people like it other. Some are, are willing to go through the academic in order to get to the commercial uh, stage. Uh, you know, companies don't typically train graduate students. Uh, and, you know, and, and so you have to kind of pass through this academic phase uh, at some point or another. It's like metamorphosis. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I think it works out overall. Uh, now, one thing to be particularly careful about is when the entire company is made up of academics. Uh, in other words, there's often they're fine, you, you know, a, a, a scientist postdoc will find a business person, either mature or you know, just finished business school, and then they'll make a symbiosis and they'll make a company that that's healthy. But sometimes um, they'll want to be, they'll want to have their, their buddies be CEO, CSO, mm. CTO, et cetera. And that also works, but it's, uh, it's much more challenging as you know, it's like elephant balancing on a ball. It definitely mm. can be done. <laughs> In fact, yeah, I would say I, most of my companies are of that second type at this point, but it took mm -hmm. a few years to get to the point where we could do that routinely. I have a, a friend who, when he left postdoc, and I don't, uh, people may know him, I don't know, but um, when he left, he tried putting like uh, doctor people, like, you know, postdocs on sales calls. And, and it was like, he was like, why did I do this? I'll just hire salespeople. Cause like the, how a scientist thinks about conveying risk is different than like, Oh, how yeah. you convey risk if you're if you're like really trying to understand what people want right. and so that like like he lost a lot of money <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah it's yeah. a it's a it's a different skill set though I, I do think the 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 structure of questioning things is transferable to sales i think the people just need to like think about it a little bit more i think maybe they'll then figure it out it's good to have communication uh yeah. throughout the organization especially when you're small uh people will wear multiple hats at the at the startup phase they'll be they'll be both uh, human resources and CTO, for example, or something like that. But um, it's tricky. Yeah, it's tricky. The, um, some, sometimes it feels like this is a great time to be alive because there's so much development going on. And we we're talking about longevity. And for the most part, a lot of the longevity interventions are for geared for like as early as possible, or it's like cholesterol. So it's like, you know, you can do that at any point, assuming probably as soon as you have a cholesterol problem. I'm thinking of like okay O'Connor uh, and uh, what he's working on, but um, do you, do you feel like the your age grouping tends to get ignored in terms of longevity? In in the sense that like most things aren't like I think most people are like shooting for like staying in like the 30s ish range, like getting everyone to like having like like the mind and body of a 30 year old. So then and then it takes time to to like group it out. So do you feel like in your age grouping? And I think I have a, a vague idea how old you are. I think you're like I don't want to say in case I'm wrong, but um. 68. You don't look as old as 68. Yeah. 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 Like the thing is like, you don't, you don't look the age, you know? So it's like, you're still doing great. Like I, if you someone said you were like 45, I'd be like, yeah, okay, I get it. Um, but do you, my, my like, father uh, went, went, went white when he was 19. So, uh, hmm. I was a little bit later, so maybe I'm a little younger. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, it's, it's also a benefit having the white hair. I think, you know, maybe people like we're like, hey, this guy has a point. Then they don't realize how old you are, you know, it's like, cause yeah. sometimes people are like, oh, you're young. You gotta wait your time. But, uh, so uh, for developing longevity technology, do you see uh, like kind of a shift 
from my point of view, it seems like people are more geared towards like the like the twenties to like forties, but I don't. And then there's like some for like cholesterol, etc. From like forties to sixties on up. Um, but like if I were to like make a bell curve on it, I would I would think like the the largest amount is like in the younger grouping. So then, do you feel like for your age grouping, they're kind of being like left out? And then are you developing technology to like account for your age grouping? Uh I don't, I don't, I, di I didn't think about it that much from that point of view. Uh, oh. I, partly because, I mean, there's, I, I see a lot of drugs being developed for mm. uh, late onset Alzheimer's, for example, which mm. is 70, 80 years old, which is older than me. Uh, you know, I see, um, you know, uh, you know, a lot of heart disease and cancer is still mainly affects people at end of life by almost by definition. Mm. Uh, and the end of life is, is moving up there. I mean, we basically been adding, uh, one year of life to every four years that human races around, uh, and we've now doubled the average lifespan, uh, over the last 170 years. So, uh, but we need to do faster than that. If we're going to save mm. people alive today, it has to be one yeah. year per year, not one year per four years. And that, I think that's happening because we suddenly, we, you know, it's like the exponential is really starting to take off in biotech. Um, and I, and I think it's hitting, you know, first to hit reading and writing DNA, which is very molecular and which is not mm -hmm. that far away from like electronics. Uh, but now it's hitting into cell biology, developmental biology, and that's, they've got their own exponential, which is similar. Uh, and I think that will uh, impact. And then and finally, the, the biggest thing that makes me not worry about what age group is being favored. This is kind of like, uh, I am worried about uh, ethnic gr ancestry groups and uh, mm. gender uh, discrimination in research. But with aging, you've got this big thing, which is aging reversal. Um, mm -hmm. And we're see we've seen plenty of examples of it in uh, animal systems and human cell culture. Um, and it's, it's a real thing. And so that that changes the discussion as to what age group you're looking at. In fact, uh, my um, ex-postdoc and co-founder of Rejuvenate Bio, Noah Davidson's group, just published a paper where they applied the, the therapy, a gene therapy, uh, a triple gene therapy. Almost all our gene therapies for aging are multiples. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, applied that at 124 weeks of mouse uh, age which to put that in perspective, about half of the cohort had died uh, from mm -hmm. old age by the time they, the time the other half got the treatment and it showed a very significant uh, increase in, in lifespan. Uh, so, so, you know, it's within our power to, to aim for very late in life uh, treatments. Mm -hmm. uh, there's kind of two schools of thought is that you, you need to treat early in order to extend life. The other is that maybe pretty late you can reverse things. And so, mm. uh, you know, I, I'm keeping my mind open on those two schools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, a great series. I think it's the Kamala series where for the, the longest time, they just would like every like 20 years, they'd get in like this, they'd go into like this pod or something and it would rejuvenate their body back to like 20. And then they would age up to 40 and then they go back to, you know, doing yeah. that again. And then um, sometimes I wonder to what extent is that something we're going to be doing? Like we don't cure Alzheimer's, but we can run rejuvenation up to the point where you basically don't have it functionally kind of like how like some nuns are right. so active up until the point they die that we don't realize that they had uh like plaques and stuff going on in their brain i wonder to, to some extent like it is that what we're gonna do and then eventually we can cure it you know but uh i wonder about these things 
do you, uh, uh, what is your uh, position on that? Do you think we'll have like rejuvenation and then eventually uh, cures for uh, the illnesses? Or do you think we'll just like uh, jump rejuvenation in the sense that I'm talking about it and have cures for the different illnesses, which is, yeah. Yeah. I, like, again, there's a few schools of thought here that are yeah. not mutually exclusive. One is that, that there's serious uh, damage to DNA, RNA and proteins, and you have to go in there with your pliers and fix them. Uh, the other is that if you just convince the cell epigenetically, you know, that, you know, like mm -hmm. change the culture of the cell, uh, it will think it's young and then it'll get its own pliers out and fix itself. Now, there are obviously some things that are hard to fix uh, uh, by oneself. Uh, for example, if you delete both copies of a tumor suppressor gene, there's you've lost that information from that cell. In principle, you could get it from another cell, but that isn't, there's no, that mechanism hasn't been shown to be common. Um, so those you might have to literally go back and then reinsert the, the mm -hmm. gene. Maybe put in a few extra copies, um, and that could be done preventatively or or reactively. I think that my uh, I fall on the camp where I think that most of it is epigenetic, and if you if you change the epigenetics either naturally or unnaturally, you can you can fix a lot of things. Um, and we're getting better and better at delivery, so we can deliver extra copies of tumor suppressors preemptively. So. Uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be a mixture of things that that deal with specific symptoms of aging and things that a, aim at the core mechanism of aging. And hence, once you get the core mechanism, you can you can reverse it. So I, mm -hmm. I think we're going to see both um, in big time in the next few years. Has there been anything in the last five years, just thinking of it from the bookends of like first interview and now that has surprised you that has come out? I think the first time we spoke there, CRISPR in terms of therapy was um, like they're still developing it. And I think this year they came out with the first two CRISPR therapies, I believe, like that people are actually going to be using them. So I think that's been a change, but I think that's like it's an expected change. Has anything like surprised you in the last five years, either longevity yeah, that or was, any of the other that areas we're talking about? Definitely not surprising. In fact, yeah, anything about CRISPR is not particularly surprising other than people's mm -hmm. reaction to it. That was surprising to me <laughs> um, because we had really great editing uh, prior to CRISPR uh, for which uh, Mario Capecci and Oliver Smithies got the Nobel Prize for pre, you know, uh, eight 1980s work. Uh, it just wasn't that efficient. So, you know, uh, normally I don't think making things a little bit more efficient is such a big deal. If you make it 20 million times more efficient, like sequencing, that's a big deal. But CRISPR was maybe four times more efficient or something like that. Um, what has been really surprising? Uh, well, you know, I was really pleasantly surprised by how easy it was to edit repetitive elements. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, with all the edit, all the best editing methods, uh, it was very hard to get above, say, 70% editing. So, you know, 70% of the cells would have one edit, right? And so if you think, well, they get two edits, uh, you know, the, 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 you're going to have the square and the three edits, it's the cube. And pretty soon, you know, none of your cells have all the edits that you want, right? And so the idea of making uh, dozens of edits was, was, seemed unlikely. Uh, to, but nevertheless, um, uh, we we did we had to do it for the pigs uh, organ transplants. We had to get rid of the viruses that they produce. All pig organs produce 
uh, retroviruses. And retroviruses, we were a little, uh, the, the world was a little gun shy about retroviruses because that's what screwed up gene therapy uh, around the year 2000 is that the retroviral therapy caused uh, cancer via the LMO2 oncogene. And so we, <clears throat> the FDA did not want to have a bunch of pig retroviruses infecting human uh, cells in immune compromised patients. Anyway, we, we did that in our first experiment, we got 62 at once, 62 edits, each of which individually seemed like it was, you know, 50 to 80% probability. So it just seemed astronomically unlikely that, you know, it's like that you would, uh, you know, pull up uh, the ace of spades 62 times in a row. Uh, and, uh, and then since then we've extended it, we've now done 25,000 edits, uh, and that, that I, I never cease to be amazed at how easy it is actually to, to uh, make that number of edits. And I think we're going to see more and more uses of multiplex editing, just like we have more and more uses of multiplex therapies or polypharmacy is sometimes called. Um, so for, in, you know, for engineering, agricultural species, industrial species, and even human uh, cells for uh, cell therapies. Mm -hmm. the, uh... I think I was watching a, an interview with you. We were talking about how like you're working or like there's a uh, theoretically we could get to like a million cell edits at the same time with multiplexing. And that's, um, I, I guess like the timeline from like 20 to 20,000 is pretty, was, it seems pretty fast. So then 20,000 to a million doesn't seem like it'd be that far off. I, I think we may already have the protocol. We just haven't, uh, uh, you know, applied it. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. we have definite applications for it, and we're moving in yeah. that direction. I mean, for example, the virus resistance that we have in E. coli only took uh, 20,000 edits. The, the virus resistance in um, mammalian, the equivalent virus resistance in mammalian cells would probably be hundreds of thousands of edits, uh, maybe a million. Um, mm -hmm. So, so that's 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 one driver. Um, uh, um, de-extinction of genes, mm -hmm. not necessarily species, or maybe even species could involve millions of edits. I think we're going to get away with hundreds, but, but since this is moving so quickly, I wouldn't be totally surprised if we get to millions by the time we need it. Is there, um, is there, I don't, I don't know. I've been playing Kerbal Space Program. It's a game on like uh, space flight. So everything's in like space terms for me, which is bad. But uh, an apogee is like the top point before you start going down. Is there yeah. is there an apogee where like uh, if you did more, like just, where you have like re reduced returns for how many more edits you could do? So like if you had like you know ten million, the ability to affect ten million cells at the same time um, versus like one million is like getting the the extra difference in ten million doesn't actually do much more. Like you reach like a cap where like you're not doing that much more. Yeah. If that makes sense. So like, um, is there a cap where like editing more cells at once would actually not be useful or is it more uh, I, generally as useful? I just want to point out there's, there's two kinds of multiplexing here that you nicely okay. pointed out uh, that I had glossed over. There's one is the number of edits per cell. <clears throat> and mm. that's the thing that I was talking about. We're, we're at 25,000 and we're heading towards a million. Um, and then there's a number of cells edited at once, and you could have both, mm. which is a large number of cells edited a large number of positions each. Um, so um, um, 
So as early as 2009, we made billions of cells that each had a, a small collection of edits. So it, was, mm. it wasn't one edit per cell. It might be five or 10 per cell, but billions of cells. So we had a very large diversity of, of genomes that were designed, not, not random, not entirely random. Um, you know, I think that uh, points of note of diminishing returns, certainly for, for the, let's say, codon remapping, there's a certain number of edits you have to make before you can delete the, the transfer RNA or, or swap mm -hmm. the, the serine and leucine that I mentioned to get, get you virus resistance. And if you stop before that, you're going to have a, you know, a key protein that's got a mixture of serines and leucines, just like the virus. And so the cell is going to die. So, um, so that's a threshold thing mm -hmm. um, for de-extinction. Let's say there may be as few as a hundred that, that allow the elephant to be cold resistant and to do its thing on restoring the, the uh, Arctic, you know, the vibrant Arctic ecosystem as a keystone species, maybe as few as a hundred. Um, but it might take millions to make it genetically identical to its to its uh, common ancestor or uh, something like that, um, and that would be a point of diminishing returns where the ecosystem impact you got most of it in the first hundred, uh, and the only reason you keep going is because you can. <laughs> mm -hmm. right. Makes sense. Yeah, and then um, I definitely see the <clears throat> an application for the. I'm going to call it the, you know, the, the make it so like the viruses can't impact uh, animals, like uh, testing out on agriculture so that, you know, you don't have those problems wherever. Cause like for the most part, oh, viruses come from animals, like when they hop over to humans and then that's what kills humans. Cause it's not built Absolutely. for our body, yeah. which uh, uh, anyone familiar with the show will know that I comment on like how, when, when, uh, when the Europeans came to America, we brought horrible stuff here, but there was not really a transmission from America's back to Europe because uh, the Americans didn't really have that many domesticated animals. I think they only had alpacas that they really domesticated. So there wasn't that many, like Europe had like pigs, chickens, you know, they had so many different things. So there was just ma many more opportunities for it. So making agriculture uh, something where uh, that jump doesn't happen, then we, we don't potentially won't have like, you know, COVID and stuff that happens to us. Um, there was, you talked in one of your uh, uh, recent interviews uh, about software as biology. And um, you, you made a comment and like, I was like, oh, I wonder what he means by this. Cause like I, you weren't able to expound on it. So I thought I'd just ask you now. You stated that uh, using that as an analogy, you say that there is a lot of biology and analog circuits that people are overlooking. And whenever you say, hey, someone's overlooking someone's like, oh wow, I definitely want to learn more. What, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, there's two opportunities. One is making, uh, put, making cells more digital. And the other is um, using what is the strength of, of uh, cellular computing, which is more analog. Mm. Okay. And, and and examples of analog is, uh, you know, uh, measuring uh, the temperature. Uh, and you can turn that into you, you, analog to digital and digital to analog are very common in electronics. And the same thing happens in biology is you can you can say you build up a certain amount and then you decide where it is in the day and you set your circadian clock or you get a certain temperature and you decide that it's spring and it's time to do the whole vernal uh, cycle thing, uh, et cetera. So, uh, but then there are other things where there isn't a switch that's flipped. You stay analog where, um, you know, the, the temperature increases a little bit, then you, uh, you then you uh, stop shivering and you, and you, and you get rid of your uh, th thermogenesis, brown fat stuff. Um, 
and vice versa. So um, there's no, I don't know, hard and fast rule where it, something has mm -hmm. to be digital, has to be uh, analog, but there definitely are cases where it's a little more efficient from an engineering standpoint or an evolutionary standpoint. Uh, one, one thing that uh, uh, keen on getting the digital going back in is recording information into the DNA of, of cells. We've, we've uh, set a record of recording two terabytes of information into uh, the DNA of um, mice um, about, you can record physiological and developmental data. And we think we can scale that up to 20 petabytes um, by uh, hiding the information in, in the parts of repetitive elements that, that we will find emp empirically are not uh, disruptive. Uh, so the reason I describe it in petabytes rather than analog terms is because DNA is is essentially digital, and you know it's got mm. it's got two bits per per base pair, um, but m a huge fraction of biology. The, the thing about biology it does this very natural gradation between analog and digital. So, for example, uh, grouping UC Irvine has used our method to encode uh, hypoxia data in in from analog state into this digital digital DNA state. So. Mm. Um, and we need to be able to go the other direction too. So we need to be able to take the digital DNA data and turn it into analog physiological um, um, responses. Yeah, I think uh, it, it, what uses, uh, well, one I think of uh, is like, you know, sometimes we want to put like biobanks or something on the moon or, you know, in different spots. But if we could just like record all the data and like hide it in cells or like a really like, Power, like you know, like the people make co uh, comments like if there's a nuclear war, like cockroaches would rule the world. Oh, so we could like oh. hide that stuff in like uh, cockroaches for us to pull out in the future. But uh, that's like more like you know apocalypse type stuff. What yeah. what uses are, is there to trans you know have like twenty uh, petabytes of data stored in, in cells? Right. Okay. So um, I mean, there's a, a a fork here in the road where mm. you're storing uh, data that is definitely digital. Let, let let's say uh, you know table you know <clears throat> tables of where all the cities are and things like that uh that's digital information it's very cultural um the other is where you're storing data that is biological that was essentially biological analog and digital data you're storing it in a new form that's more compact uh, and so you're essentially creating a time record kind of a a, a tape recording or a, a flight recorder uh, is I think the best analogy where uh, um, in case something goes wrong, you can go and inspect the record in whatever cell you want. So if something went wrong in the liver, you can go into the liver and itself and see what its flight recorder is, says. Mm -hmm. So uh, so I think this could be used medically or potentially environmentally to, to if something bad happens, you go in and you can go to a particular coordinate where the bad thing happened and uh, and lift out some some DNA and figure out what happened. You don't have to sequence the entire ecosystem or the entire organism to figure it out. Um, so it's just like a flight recorder, I think, is is mm -hmm. the is the main use case that I have so far. But you know, it's one of these things. A little baby, you don't know where it's going to go next. So you know. yeah, that would be interesting if it was like uh, if you had it in every organism on the planet. So whenever you were exposed to it, you kind of like you could see like what was happening to it for the course of its life. It's kind of yeah. like uh, tagging sharks. You could just you know take a little biopsy and then you 
you'd have yeah. all the information then. Yeah, it'd be really cool. Exactly. Um, yeah. The one thing that you in one of one of your other talks that I wanted to touch on before I think we jumped in more longevity related things um, is uh, you talked about using synthetic biology as manufacturing. Well, we talked about this in our first one. Um, yeah. I don't know if anything has developed any faster on this, but you talked about it as a way to alleviate uh, poverty. You know, if we came in and we could build uh, manufacture through synthetic biology medicines, then that's one last thing that the the uh, the society that is in poverty has to worry about something like invest in other things. But I was I was reading that uh, in like Poland, for instance, they use clams to determine if uh, if uh, uh, water treatment plants have filtered enough of the water for it to be drinkable. They use like you know a biology process. So I was, uh, I was really taken by this idea of using biomanufacturing to alleviate poverty. If you could go in and then build uh, you know water treatment like a self replicating and uh, rejuvenating system for like water sanitation and all these other things, because when, when poverty, one of the biggest things is like they don't really have clean water. You know, medicine's a huge one, of course. So if you could alleviate all those things and then uh, make it something that they just have to like, you know, feed, I guess, that may be really cool. I, I was just like really taken by that idea of, can we use synthetic biology to alleviate poverty and lift people up and build systems? Because like, even in America, we have like Flint, Michigan, that has like, I think it still has lead in the uh, the waters and we have um, like chemical spills and all these other things. So like having like a biological process that could break it down um, and then, um, or manufacture to create something uh, because biology does seem extremely efficient compared to like what humans can do. Like, I don't think we're as efficient as what biology can do yet. Yeah. So, oh, you, you, you're touching a nerve here uh, in a good way uh, in that I think that not only can we uh, create a virtuous circle for um, poverty where you alleviate a little bit and that gives them a little bit more health and uh, education to, to, to make the next increment in, in lifting up out of poverty, lifting themselves out of poverty. In, in particular, I think that one can that one can imagine and we're working on uh, a, 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 a box essentially where uh, where it, it produces food and then and you do complete recycling. So you can think of the house, you can have a house that's like a space station or a submarine mm-hmm. completely sealed in, nothing exchanged with the outside world other than you know, energy from geothermal or solar or wind, whatever, um, that that then uh, helps recycling. Uh, and because you're in complete control, each household it has its own system. Once you have a clean system that doesn't have lead in it, doesn't have other industrial pollutants in it, um, uh, it will stay clean. Um, and also, you you will have known mechanisms for cleaning it up in the first place. So, you know, there are no mechanisms by which you can biologically decompose uh, dioxin and other toxins uh, where you can um, take uh, heavy metals and sequester them into a lump in the, in the mm-hmm. side and you just leave it there. Um, but then from then on, the, the, it's internal. You eliminate supply chain uh, costs and, and insecurity. So a lot of the problem with poverty is, is not so much they're impoverished today. It's that the next time there's a supply chain issue, uh, you know, they have they have to pick up and, and go and they become refugees and all kinds of things like that. So you need to have a more stable supply chain. And what could be better than having it, you know, all within your house? Um, also, a huge amount of the, the uh, environmental damage is done due to, you know, making pipelines and roads and and uh, manufacturing of, of uh, trucks and so forth. And that could be eliminated if, if you know, 90% of the manufacturing occurs in your kitchen. Mm-hmm. 
and I, even the like some of the basic stuff that people do for like biohacking uh or just like when they're first learning genetic engineering is like hey can we add something and then have like it like be um at the same time so um if there's like something going wrong in the system like it could be as simple as like you know you know color coding it so the you're reducing the level of technical expertise that a person using the system would even need to have to it's kind of like the chinese box like they would just need to know like these co- the, the, these colors correspond with these things that inputs they have to put into it they just go over their day it's even better than that uh and you can make it so they just ask what they want so they say i want you know a vegan burger right and you press mm-hmm. vegan burger and out comes one and so that there's no colors to match or anything. You just you just see what you like, and or it even remembers what you like, you know, to have on Fridays. Um, and it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like GPS, you know, on your phone. Uh, you have most people have no idea of how many satellites there are and what angle they have to be at, and and uh, mm-hmm. how they're synced up with 37 atomic clocks uh, and all this stuff that is required for it to tell you to turn left. Um, and that's uh, that's the beauty of it is you don't you don't even need to have simple programming skills. You just need you talk to it the way you would talk to an extremely knowledgeable person. So I, I I think that same thing will be true for manufacturing. It's it's not that hard to recycle, um, you know, complete do complete recycling. Uh, we have an, plant and animal systems that have been going for you know eight decades uh, in a completely sealed container. Uh, it doesn't have to be completely sealed with humans, but it would be, if you can do that, then you have a whole new set of capabilities. Even submarines and the International Space Station um, you know, rarely go the, more than a few months. Uh, they're always getting resupplied. So it's not really a sealed system, uh, except for those short periods of times that are in between supply runs. Uh, but we can definitely do it. We know how to do it for animals. So. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. it would also reduce certain existential risks. So, uh, you know, uh, certain kinds of, depending on your sources of energy, certain kinds of, you know, asteroids, uh, pandemics, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, super volcanoes and so forth. Uh, you could, you could, and, and you could also prepare for, for leaving the planet if you you test out the whole um survival in small clans uh or small um uh, isolated systems you test it out on earth where the risk is lower well, if you if something goes wrong on mars you got a couple of years to get back to the nearest emergency room well, on earth you, you test out these modules um right right in the shadow of a city mm-hmm. There was a, I was watching this, uh, this, it was a smarter every day. He's a great YouTuber. He like goes and discovers things. He went on a submarine and he looked at like how they produce food and they had like this, like a, like a, like a corridor stocked with food. And, but to get to something, they have to take it all out to get in there to find like, you know, ketchup or, you know, maple syrup and they've organized as best as they can, yeah. but there's not that much space in a submarine. So instead of needing like, so many different food stocks you could just have like uh several food stocks and then use this uh biomanufacturing process to then create the food from there exactly. so i think that like even like it'd be space efficient uh, and you know you don't have to do like play uh, tetris with it too much uh, right. which would be pretty exactly. pretty cool yeah yeah and in fact it's doing the tetris because it's probably yeah. all the all the different producing micro industrial microbes are inside the box and you just say 
make this and then somebody else's programmed it. it it adds a whole new level to the idea of recipes right mm-hmm. um yes yeah, uh, where the input is something much closer to uh to uh to, to you know, raw synthetic biology yeah um i think the closest to this type of system that i can think of is like you know cellular agriculture in terms of you know taking cells and just producing it based on what you're giving it. Um, yep. Is there anything that you can think of that's working towards this type of system? Um, well, that's the disappointing thing is there aren't, I mean, there, there are some mm-hmm. uh, algae that are fairly uh, nutritious and tasty, like spirulina uh, that also, uh, but but the, no one has, there's almost no recipes for making things entirely out of uh, such organisms. Um, usually they use them as garnish or, or, uh, you know, a little bit of seasoning just to feel good about it, but, uh, having recipes entirely based, but it's not that far away either. I mean, making recipes is something that everybody can do. It's like, it's one of the few citizen sciences that literally everybody participates in, in one way or another. Um, so I, I think this would just be incredibly enabling, uh, to, to be able to, it, it could keep track of the nutrition for you. You just you just tell it what you like to, to, to taste, mm-hmm. and, and you experiment with with new um, you know sources of uh, metabolism. Could um, so the the interesting thing with like energy generation, for instance, is it's all basically just built on a turbine. You know, like even like nuclear power plants. I thought that'd be cooler. You know, like people were like, oh, they're gonna like you know kill people or whatever. And I actually looked into how they you know, how they work. It's no different than just like, you know, spinning a, a turbine, like just like steam is generated, whether it's like coal or whatever, and um, a, a turbine is sure, uh, uh, turned and then like that's power that comes out. Could we ever like, obviously you, you shouldn't do this because it doesn't make sense. But like if we like took mitochondria and like blew it up and uh, I, I guess that's a horrible uh, analogy, but can we use a biomanufactured uh, energy plant to produce energy as efficiently? I think uh, I think um, nuclear is the most efficient form of energy so could we do the same thing with like with power using uh biomanufactured like a like a cell thing about a technical uh, term probably yeah well take photovoltaic is an easy example mm-hmm. i'll get back to nuclear um photons come in they get electronically converted to uh you know a, a voltage and and then that can uh pro- can uh, go straight into biological systems. So you can have either electro uh, metabolism or it can turn back into photons that are at the right wavelength. So photons coming in are include infrared, green, and ultraviolet, none of which are well-tuned to a lot of photosynthetic systems. Anyway, so you can essentially remap without turbines. Um, and then, and then, the, then the biology has all kinds of chemistry. Basically, almost all chemistry probably could be done that we're interested in could be done biologically um nuclear would be uh i think more challenging uh but there are um there there are thermonuclear devices in uh certain space um probes that uh this is past tense is not in the future um that do not involve turbines as far as i know and so Mm. they're not they're not at the very high level of, uh, of, a, of a modern fission reactor. And we don't even know what the fusion reactors are going to be like, but probably they're, they're so hot that it's going to be very tempting to, to run turbines. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm not, 
I, I don't think it really matters. If you have a centralized facility, it does turbines are fine. It's just when you mm-hmm. want to be off the grid, then you might want geothermal or solar. Probably, probably something geothermal might be the safest one, maybe wind, because if you get like a nuclear winter or something like that due to a super volcano or a, a meteor hitting, um, then you want to have something that's that's a little bit safer than photovoltaics from the, from that kind of standpoint. Mm-hmm. Now, recently, so, geothermal about... is is effective yeah. almost anywhere on the planet. Uh, yeah. It's it's easiest to do when it's near the surface, like in Iceland, but uh, but everywhere on the planet has you know six hundred degrees centigrade if you drill deep enough. Uh, so uh, you know it takes some investment to get down there and. Uh, but then from that point off, you're off the grid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was recently reading how efi- uh, efficient uh, geothermal is in terms of like um, how easy it is to, to hook up because you can actually get them in like for houses and stuff. And they'll last for like 50 to 100 years, like the piping that you put under yep. underground. And it's like it's not even that deep. I, I was saying like you have to like really be in a special spot. Maybe it's from sci-fi because it's always like in a volcano, we're doing like geothermal or something. But um, I... I a lot of the a lot of the systems we're talking about, it reminds me of like this science fiction. Like there's like subgenres like uh like frostpunk or uh like but but basically there's like biopunk where like everything's built out of biological uh, systems. And it, and it feels like there there could be a future and not too distant future where um you know um like a lot of the things in society are built using biology versus uh you know like people's hands. You know like in terms of like us having to build it, uh, which would be pretty interesting. And if you do want to uh, do stuff like that, you should build it in the, in the Midwest. Because it's much cheaper. I tell everyone this all the time. If you look at the how 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 expensive things are on like the coast to the Midwest, it's so much more affordable out here. Um, though it's it's really cool that Vis can be built where it is, and they make use of all the other networks around it in terms of uh, innovation and stuff like that. Uh, there there was a a, a fan question about uh, the woolly mammoth, and I just want to pull it up real quick because uh, it's it's a really cool thing. I think when we first were talking about it, it was just like a, a, not like a twinkle in your eye, like you were working on it. I think you had like a, <laughs> there was a book. Where the guy, I think it's called uh, Wooly or Mammoth. Where the, there was like he talked about how like there was a mouse and it like roared like a lion, like uh, not a lion, like the Wooly Mammoth, because like you put some cells into it, uh, which I think is just like really great imagery, even if it wasn't true. Um, in regards to the Wooly the Mammoth re- Restoration Project, uh, can you talk about the modifications that you're going to be making to the Asian elephant, other than giving it fur? I looked online and I tried to see if I could like you know reverse engineer what was actually being done. Um, but is it possible to talk about what type of uh, work you're doing on the Asian elephants to move it to the woolly mammoth in terms of like in specificity? Uh, like sure, absolutely. It, it's uh, uh, we're we're, ha- we're going to have a paper or two coming out uh, pretty soon uh, where we lay this out uh, maybe within the, within the next uh, eight months or so. Uh, the and we've we've discussed some of this, uh, but the, the list is mainly focused on uh, cold adaptation, mm-hmm. uh, or you could say handling both winter and summer, where the winter is minus forty and the summer is normal. <laughs> um, and el- Asian elephants actually can tolerate pretty low temperatures and in- enjoy playing in the snow and and even playing in frozen lakes. They'll break through the ice and they'll swim around for a while, but they can't do it for very long or for very cold or very low, high wind chill. Um, and so, so, so one needs uh, fat deposits. So there was like 10 centimeters of fat pretty much all over the body. 
of the mammoths that was not in uh, modern elephants. Uh, instead of the, the short, uh, spiky, uh, sparse hairs that are essentially radiative, they radiate heat. Um, instead, they had the thick, the mammoths had the thick, woolly hair. Um, so those two probably aren't that hard. Um, there are more physiological, more biochemical things like their hemoglobin was adapted to uh, to release oxygen at lower temperatures than is normal. So, so the, the skin temperature um, uh, is getting close to freezing point, um, even though the core body temperature is the same as our core body, the skin is different. So that, that, uh, that, that, that's one of the genes that has been uh, uh, restored, de-extincted, and, and shown to be uh, have plausible functionality. Uh, the ears have to be smaller so they don't mm. get frostbite. Uh, you know, uh, a few things like that. There, there's some things that may not be present in the mammoth that we're also that's also on our list uh, that are present in neither the modern elephants nor the ancient ones, and those are things like resistance to killer pathogens. Uh, in fact, back to the whole virus thing that we talked about earlier, uh, elephants have a very serious virus problem. Uh, they're partly, they're endangered species because of herpes viruses. And, um, and so we have various strategies we're exploring to make them resistant to either all viruses or to the specific EEHV virus, which is uh, part of what's making them go extinct. Um, and then, then we may have... Um, adaptations to, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, poach, poaching, you know, where they, they either have, you know, very short or no tusks under certain circumstances mm -hmm. and in other circumstances where they're well cared for and guarded, they'll have the big, you know, maybe even bigger tusks than, than, uh, than usual. So, so those two things, uh, you know, the virus resistance and the tusks, manipulation may not depend on the mammoths, but, but most of them are inspired. We, the other place where we could deviate a little bit from the mammoth inspiration, we could look at polar bears and penguins and other um, uh, cold tolerant animals for, for ideas uh, and maybe make these elephants even more cold, cold tolerant than the mammoths were. Um, but the, you know, this is, the point is we're not limited. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's, that's the short list uh, that you were looking for, I think. Yeah. Is it, uh, for controlling the tusk length, would it just be like, uh, if you gave them like a, a certain food, I think of, um, like, uh, uh, bees, like the difference between a queen bee and a regular yes. bee is just like, they're just fed something differently. Would that be like how you'd regulate it, uh, in terms of like being in a safe spot versus not safe spot? Exactly. We, we yeah. already have, uh, projects where we've uh, made organisms that are biocontained, meaning that if they don't get this chemical, which is not available in the wild, it's only made by organic chemists, then, then they can't replicate. And uh, in the case of the elephants, it might be that same chemical, which uh, they can't make tusks without that chemical. Um, and so you, you put that in the feed uh, in a very well-protected animal reserve, you know, it might be, um, you know, hundreds of square kilometers, but it's very well guarded. Uh, but then when you let them out into the millions of square kilometers of the uh, Canadian and, and Alaskan and, and Russian Arctic, there their their tusks will be small. And that's already been it's already been shown. There are there are tribes of elephants that 
that don't have tusks and they do fine. Uh, the tribes of elephants have ridiculously long tusks, uh, and and the and the genetics of this has been studied, and we'll we'll exploit it. Is there uh, any plans to expedite the gestation period? Because I think elephants have like twenty two months, which is a pretty long time. Yeah. Uh, we are definitely interested in short gestation periods. It'll probably uh, result in smaller animals, uh, although mm. there are animals that keep growing, you know, for, for, in other words, they, they're born small, but they keep growing until they're quite large. Um, I mean, for example, the, the record for short gestation are, is in marsupials and in rodents, um, non-marsupial uh, eutherian mammals. It's, it's around 20 days for a mouse and maybe 13 for the fastest marsupial. But the marsupials are essentially born. They're still, they look like fetuses. I mean, they, they can crawl up and get to the milk, but they, uh, and the same thing's true for the rodents. When the rodents are born, they're, they're blind, they're hairless. They're very, very fragile. Uh, they're not like, uh, you know, like, uh, cattle <laughs> they come out mm -hmm. running you know uh yeah so so there's a trade-off but 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 it would be helpful to get feedback quickly by having a short gestation and i i don't think we're going to make a 20-day gestation period rather than 22 uh months uh, but we might i mean there might be some reason to do that uh um yeah. And the other, but more important maybe than gestation length is how many we can do in parallel. Um, yeah. uh, and I think if we can do this ex vivo, which, which we've got a fair amount of uh, effort on that, uh, then we can uh, have them, you know, essentially in this giant warehouse or conveyor belt or something where they're, um, where we could have 10,000 of them growing without uh, interfering with the, reproduction of the endangered the current uh, endangered species we're close to being able to replicate gestation outside of the womb i thought we were like we only had we only had like artificially could like test drugs on like a like it's like a little chip i don't know we could we were close to having something where you could like really take it out of the system out of the the mom well, it's it's hard to say how close they are but but there are parts that make it seem like we might be close if you're mm. In, you know, embedded in the field. So for example, you can take mice up to almost uh, nine, 10 days, which is halfway through gestation from, from fertilization. And human preemies, we can get half, we can take them, so they're only halfway through a normal uh, uh, human gestation and take them all the way to birth and they're, and they're fine. So that, so in a way, you can get halfway from both sides. So it seems like all you have to do is bridge it. The problem is that most of the protocols for getting uh, halfway from fertilization, um, you you haven't really hooked it up to uh, umbilical cords and, and placenta properly. So it's, so you can't just trivially swap into preemie mode. Um, and there's just a little gap there. So that's one way of looking at it. Uh, another... We are getting um, just much better at um, producing organs for transplant. I mentioned the pig organs as one of them, um, and this and and keeping transplantable organs alive outside the body. 
So if you can keep the endometrium, the uterine wall, alive like you would an organ outside of the body, then implantation is mm. almost automatic. Um, and then, then the two halves, the embryo half and the maternal half, have well-evolved mechanisms for all the feedback, physiology, and so forth. So the, the key thing is getting the endometrium to be able to um, be healthy outside the body. Um, uh, the, 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 you know, the development um, is, is, is fairly much on autopilot, but no one, it, it's, it's amazing how little effort has gone into maintaining organs outside the body, mainly because most transplants don't need to be outside the body more than a few hours. So there's not a heavy, up until now, there hasn't been a heavy motivation for, for setting records on that, but that's, that's what we're doing. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, with organ transplant, I've always felt like, like the, the time horizon, like they have to move really fast, but there's, are, there's also a lot that just like, there's no one around to use them. So no one gets to use them. So having like a, like a bio bank of organs, they can just be maintained until they're used. But then again, um, you know, then just like manufacture your own organs is also pretty cool. Um, so I'm, I'm generally curious if, if when you're developing a product, sometimes you just like find people and you see what their pain points are and then people can like kind of help and building things around that. I'm curious for you and your innovation, are there problems that you have that if someone's like, Hey, I come in with, I mean, I guess this like, uh, the, uh, ex vivo process to generate, uh, elephants would probably be a process you would love help with, but are there tools or techniques that you wish were being, uh, that, that you wish you had to do the work that you're doing to like expedite them? Oh, absolutely. Uh, most of the tools I wish I had, I'm working on, uh, but mm. still they, some of them seem to take a while. Uh, I would, uh, let's, I mean, I, I, you know, wish we had uh, better microscopy uh, that we're, I mean, right now we finally have microscopy that can work at pretty high resolutions, like 20 nanometers, maybe better uh, where we can label the NARNA and protein. So that's, that's a way of, when we're engineering, you want to be able to check to see what you're doing, right? And so a lot of what we're doing is invisible um, with the naked eye. And so we need better better and better microscopes. Um, and the problem is that once you get to super resolution, if you want to do both uh, large scale and small scale at the same time, uh, you end up with a lot of data. So, so you know, petabytes uh, just to do ordinary things. Um, and then another thing that doesn't scale well, and so a lot of this is scaling, is, uh, is, is uh, say, 3D printing. There's a lot of things. We would like to be able to 3D print anything. I actually teach a course called How to Grow Almost Anything, which is it's on the internet. It's international. And it's a sibling course of how to make almost anything. And we would like to be able to merge those so that we can make any device that, that is currently inorganic with biology. Um, and then and then use the two together to you know we should be able to make that and biology is fairly good at inorganic materials as well but it's not really there yet so i'd like to have um and and to use developmental biology rather than uh cartesian 3d coordinate printing which is very slow and doesn't scale well uh, biology mm -hmm. has trillions of printhead equivalents per cubic millimeter in the form of ribosomes and cell division and so forth all these um molecular machines. So it has this incredibly high density of simultaneously performing print heads while most 3D printers are, you know, kind of this mm -hmm. simple, uh, you know, Cartesian robot. 
So that's, that's, that's a partial list. Uh, mm. um, but the list goes on and on of things that are missing, um, but they're getting filled exponentially. So I'm not panicked, but uh, it, it, they don't, it doesn't fill itself by itself yet. Uh, mm -hmm. So it requires a great deal of ingenuity and hard work to uh, fill those gaps in technology, which is kind of the main thing my group does. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, it's always great to read what you're up to. I, I wonder if you had like a, like a, things we're not covering and we don't know anyone who's covering, like if you had like a list and then people go, oh, okay, you know, they could like use that to generate some ideas. But uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll link the courses to, in the show notes. Um, so, uh, uh, fan question. Um, gene therapies that have been approved for rare diseases are very expensive. What should we expect in terms of cost? Of, I don't think you'd be able to answer this, but cost oh, for yeah. gene therapies tar targeting... <laughs> Uh, uh, well, it's for rejuvenate bio, which I think is what should we expect in terms of cost for gene therapies targeting the biology of aging, like those developed by rejuvenate bio? Because I think that, like you, you, you can guess even at this point. This is pretty this early. Is I think a, this is a great question. Is this is this a fan mm -hmm. question? Did you say? Yes. Yes. Okay, it's a great question, um, and I'm ready for it. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> I have uh, pointed out that I'll. Uh, there may be a, a different strategy for rare diseases and common diseases. And I would put mm. aging in a common disease category and other common diseases, pandemics or, or you know, very large uh, um, vaccination programs. Even if they're currently rare diseases, we still have to vaccinate the entire population. And what happens is for these common diseases, infectious and, and age-related, is since everybody is, is a consumer, uh, the denominator for, you know, you have kind of fixed costs for R&D and clinical mm. trials, and the denominator is the number of people that benefit. So for rare diseases, that denominator is tiny. It could be 100 people a year. Uh, and so the cost is, you know, the, the highest cost I've seen so far for a therapy is $3.5 million per dose for one of the recent rare disease uh, gene therapies. And in fact, that, that, that caused me some concern when I entered the field of gene therapy, you know, many years ago is... I, you know, I've, I've been the proponent of making technology equitably distributed uh, so that uh, even poor nations and communities would have access. Uh, and, and, I, and I realized, you know, and we did that. We brought down the cost of reading and writing DNA by, uh, you know, 20 million fold and improved quality at the same time. But for pharmaceuticals, they seem to be creeping up rather than going down exponentially. Um, but then if you, if you reanalyze sort of to uh, uh, think about it a different way, the recent COVID vaccines, the top five of them were all formulated as gene therapies. And um, one, of, one category of those five is uh, adenoviral capsid around double-stranded DNA encoding uh, the vaccine protein. Um, and that got down to as little as uh, $2.18 per dose. So down from 3.5 million for a rare disease to two point. And they're both, you know, viral capsids around double-stranded DNA. They're, they're gene therapies. Um, so I think that's where it could go. I think that's going to apply to aging reversal. And, age, and aging reversal or age, if, if, if you don't like aging reversal, then aging disease, you know, core treatments for hitting multiple aging related diseases, which is what we're doing. Um, that could be in that range. Now I'm not making a promise from on the behalf of my companies. They're going to sell things for $2 a dose, at, at least initially, 
but it's certainly, we've got the proof of principle that works. It's been tested, you know, the, the, these gene therapy-like things have been tested in billions of people worldwide. Um, and I think the, the experience has been fairly positive. So I think we're off and running now um, on, on, on common gene therapy. So, that, so now what about the rare ones? Uh, I think one uh, solution that is, that is getting better and better every day and was, was already pretty good uh, is uh, genetic counseling. And this can be done either preconception or premaritally, uh, which is the, the best time because the, there's no risk of false positives causing damage on their own. Um, and it can be done as late as uh, in vitro fertilization or even uh, um, um, prenatal. Um, the in vitro fertilization is getting much better. One of my companies, Orchid, is sequencing every single embryo that goes through the, the uh, IVF clinic. And that helps not only avoid these very serious uh, but rare diseases, get them, you get them all at once because you get the whole genome, but it also helps uh, with the fertility itself because a lot of failures in the IVF clinic. So on average, you have to do five rounds of hormone treatment and IVF to get one child. Um, mm -hmm. and a lot of those are due to, um, aneuploids or, or other genetic diseases that are so fatal, they kill the child before it can even be born. And so if you're anti-abortion, you should be anti-spontaneous abortion as well. And this is, a uh, a way by sequencing the, the, uh, IVF, uh, embryos, you can see which ones are, are, are going to survive. And we might get that down to five down from five IVFs per baby to one IVF per baby. Um, so I think, I, I think all of that is going, is going to handle the, the rare ones. Uh, now IVF isn't quite as equitably distributed as uh, the genome sequencing, which will be basically free. And uh, once you get the return on investment work, worked out um, and um, and aging reversal drugs, which might be once in a lifetime and, $2 a dose. So, and that also could be free because it would be to the government's advantage to have people, you know, working past retirement age, being healthy, not, not consuming. So I think those are the different answers for rare and, and common, but they both hopefully will end up with, you know, equitable uh, distribution to even in, even the poorer communities. Mm -hmm. Uh, something that I thought of um, when you're saying that reminded me of the like making it so the viruses can affect things. Because um, you, you were talking about like uh, you mentioned COVID and the mRNA vaccines. Could, I didn't could we mention use... mRNA vaccines. I actually mentioned uh, adenoviral capsid, uh, double strand mm -hmm. DNA. But but mRNA vaccines are also formulated as gene therapy. It's just a, a less common one and a new one. Hmm. I was I was wondering um, just as a quick aside, is it possible to? Uh, modify a virus to have a gene drive so then when it goes out in the wild it just infects all the other ones and then you know they die really quick could you do that i don't know if you could i was just wondering well, so just you know for the listeners uh, gene drive is uh, typically something that spreads through sexual uh species that and and ideally ones that breed quickly so these would typically be insects or rodents um it doesn't wor work as such in viruses nor in uh, asexual bacteria, nor mm. in um, asexual plants and animals. Um, um, viruses already spread pretty quickly. Uh, 
I guess the question is, can you make a virus that will outcompete the other viruses? Or, um, you know, when the, when on the rare case that viruses exchange genetic material, will it win uh, in some sense? Uh, I think that's challenging, but possible uh, that you could. But the problem is that getting viruses that outcompete natural viruses sounds a little risky. And I think rightly so it's not going to be easy to fund and it should certainly if it is funded it should be done in glaring sunlight with a lot of people watching um and um yeah you know, a lot of different kinds of voices being heard about whether it should be done mm. i think it, i think yeah. much more powerful than a gene drive and a virus or the equivalent in, in a non-spectral species is the virus the, is the vaccines is preparing our immune system for these viruses and um i know we're coming to the end there's a um oh, oh, also that the, we, we could do recoding uh which is mm. which is the ultimate because that makes us resistant to all viruses rather than one at a time via vaccines some of which our immune system just doesn't remember it very well our immune system doesn't remember coronavirus or norovirus very well um so so the multivirus resistance we get from recoding would be much more awesome also much harder <laughs> to get uh implemented uh is that something uh if we were to do like 10 years out is that something you like if, if like so woolly mammoths five years ago was something that you were developing with mice and now you're developing it in the actual animal itself 10 years from now do you see um stuff like that being something that would actually be in development um in terms of like for humans um, I'm, I'm well, curious, like, what do you see for the next 10 years? It, I guess? it depends on your definition of develop in development. It, it is in development mm -hmm. already. So it's yeah. I can with confidence say it'll be in development. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that we could, if, if, if the rate at which we can do multiplex editing, you know, 25,000 today, maybe 250,000 tomorrow, uh, you know, a couple of years from now, uh, we could construct cell lines that are multivirus resistant, that are resistant to all viruses, just like we did for the industrial microorganism. And then we could use those cell lines to make cell therapies like hematopoietic stem cells, um, you know, you know uh, neurons in the brain and so forth, um, which are already happening uh, in a non-multivirus resistant way. So you could say... Um, any any cell therapy or organ therapy or, or transplant would be better if it were multivirus resistant. So you just pop that in as an option. It's like, you know, do you want bucket seats? Okay, check. Okay. And uh, 10 years from now, I don't know where, where it'll probably still be in development. Uh, it, it, you know, it is true that some clinical trials are now happening in one year rather than 10 years, but um, until that's very common. I, I hesitate to say anything takes less than 10 years in, in mm -hmm. medicine. So then uh, one of the, the listeners wrote in and uh, it's a very personal qu uh, question. So I, I appreciate their courage in asking it. Um, they, were, they said, <clears throat> I have a disability called CRPS and mine is a result of an amputation and reattachment resulting in multiple pain issues due to nerve damage, inflammation, other issues going on for the last 12, uh, 12 years. Um, is CRISPR something that could potentially uh, fix issues like that, or is uh, some, that something more like that would CRISPR would be good for like regrowing an arm? Basically, we're wondering like, uh, what could CRISPR and genetic engineering technology do to alleviate the type of suffering he's going through, or 
um, is it more like of the two branches, would it be easier to just regrow a limb? I guess would be my way of, of summarizing it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, complex regional pain syndrome uh, mm. is a subset of pain in general. And I think there's been a breakthrough in pain um, in that we have pathways now that are non-opioid pathways, non-cocaine pathways um, that are based on sodium uh, channels um, that uh, actually reflect a person uh, or, or a set of people in the world that have chronic insensitivity to pain or SEPA. Uh, and so those could be harnessed. And, and those people are not doped up uh, the way you would expect of a opioid or a cocaine derivative, um, they are, they're fine. Uh, so, and you can make it local or you can make it temporary. Um, mm. and I think that's, that's happening. It could be small molecule drugs or it could be gene therapy. Uh, I don't put CRISPR on a pedestal, even though I did have something to do with, you know, making it out there in the world. Uh, I think it's just one of a set of tools. And if you're going to be making, um, transplantable limbs or organs, um, then it, CRISPR is not really the centerpiece of that. I mean, most of it is, you know, biological and tissue engineering, uh, and you're going to use a variety of editing tools uh, to, to, to get you there. If it comes from an animal, then most of the challenge is making it um, uh, uh, you know, compatible immunologically and physiologically. And, and I think we've handled that right now. We'll know soon we've got uh, two year survival in, uh, in preclinical non-human primate trials. Uh, so that, that, that bodes well for getting it into human clinical trials very soon. Um, I think it, it, the insensitivity to pain was probably something that's better done with drugs than with transplants. Uh, but there are plenty of cases where we will need to transplant limbs as well as, uh, I mean, there's a, unfortunately there's still a lot of warfare in the world. There's, uh, you know, occupational and, uh, and car accidents and so forth. But, uh, but yeah, I, 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 my guess is the pain will come from progress in, um, in the, the sodium channel um, pain um, pathways. Uh, and then completely separately will be uh, organ and limb transplants. And then um, are there books that you've read over the last couple of years they'd suggest people check out? I know your book, uh, based on all the longevity books, but um, the one thing that I'm doing is I'm compiling all the books that everyone's recommended in 170 plus episodes and I'm putting in a PDF for everyone to read. Uh, so this will be like kind of a nice bookend, but um, are there any books you recommend people check out? I think the first time we spoke, you uh, were a big fan of, what's his name? Hitchhiker's Guide of the Galaxy. I think uh, we, we, we quoted Doug that Adams, yeah, a few times. Right. Yes, yeah. yes. But uh, yeah, is there anything else, uh, anything you recommend people read? Either on aging, on biotechnology, just anything that you've enjoyed. Um, yeah, I have a tendency to read books that are written by friends. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and they asked me to write a blurb for the cover of the book. <laughs> uh, so I have kind of a bias. And, oh, and then, mm -hmm. and then things that are complete fiction. Um, totally off topic, um, uh, which, which is my wife and I read a, uh, in, in an audible uh, stream uh, when we're doing chores uh, together. Um, 
I, I'm, what I'm are, writing a book. Uh, hopefully that will oh, be cool. uh, on your on your bookshelf for your uh, 200th uh, episode. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't have anything in particular that uh, it, it's. I think there's a need for more books on um, on the revolution that's occurring in synthetic biology, manufacturing, aging reversal, and so forth. Uh, probably that will be the more than adequately filled in the next couple of years. But uh, right now, I think there's, there most, most of the books on synthetic biology are, you know, like biofuels, not terribly useful mm-hmm. or, and the ones on aging are, you know, like, you know, how to eat slightly better things, which again, is not exactly news. Uh, you know, I might mention a few new brand names, but they're really not revolutionary. Um, I hope I'm not insulting any uh, authors or anything, but I, I think it's, it's, we're just at this interesting transition zone where if you want to write a book, that's not totally science fiction, you have to stick to things that are a little bit boring uh, mm. years, science fiction will become fact. And then suddenly all the books will become exciting. Uh, and it's not, it's not the fault of current or future authors. It's just, just the nature of scientific revolution. I think that if you were to do like a crowdsource Kickstarter type thing to to write a book and you could just write it, you know, as advanced as you want, I think you'd get more than enough money to write whatever you'd want. Like you oh, even have like a, a team of researchers too. It's not a financial problem. It's it's, it, it's okay. More, it's more a time management problem. Mm. Uh, I do, mm. have, as you pointed out earlier, I, I do have a few things uh, that I'm doing um, that that limit my writing time, but but it, it's getting done. It's it's uh, it's getting done more and more quickly. And so just like, what are, what is like one fiction book that you're, you're reading or uh, audible reading? Oh, uh, let's see. Um, um, there's, uh, there was one on a, a sort of Darwinian. It was the something of all things. Uh, uh, and it, it was, it was about a, a woman, a, a, a fictional woman, uh, contemporary of Darwin, who who had her own a very similar theory, uh, the signature of all things, and it, it was based on uh, this principle that that there was a signature that that uh, plants and animals would kind of tell us what their function is. It could be for medicine or something like that by their shape. Um, mm. That was that was part of it. It was much more complicated than that. It was, it was a little lovely story. It wasn't. I wouldn't call it a science. Uh, exclusively, but it had that little thread going through it that I thought was nice. Um, oh, uh, there was one by Andy Weir. Um, the Martian or the new one? Uh, the, the, the Martian, but there was another one, Hail Mary. Um, yeah. Uh, he also has I, Egg. What? Yeah, has, sorry, uh, there's a short story. I think it's called Egg, which is also pretty good. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, just very, those two are very creative and, and, and I think they're very kind of pro-science. You sort of feel at the end of it, like that's, that's great. You know, they, they think out mm-hmm. of the box, they do stuff that needs to be done and so forth. So I, I thought those were, those were good. You know, yeah. uh, there's also the, a story of the dog barking at night, something like that, which was mm-hmm. written from the standpoint of a, of a uh, autistic uh 
child, older, older child. And it was, I just thought it was very well done. Uh, in there. It was a very interesting, interesting mystery, kind of on a, kind of a small, uh, relatable scale. Too, too many mysteries, you know, involve 12 murders. <laughs> and you just, this was, you know, nobody, no, no people died. And it, it just seemed like it was more relatable. Um, but even if you've never met or never known you've met an autistic person, um, now, not not all these books are are brand new, but you know I don't I don't mm. I, I, some books are so permanent uh, you know that they're they don't need to be brand new. Some sometimes you miss it the first time through. Yeah, I'm reading uh like uh, some Dostoevsky books, and it's like oh this is nice. I, I prefer like the more like War and Peace type Russian authors. Yeah, because they don't really Paul have Stoyer paragraphs. And, uh, yeah. Yes, 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 yeah. Thank you. I, I didn't think of the. I didn't couldn't think of the name. Uh, yeah, it's also like, like it's a little uh, like Dostoevsky. like he didn't know what a, like a uh, indentation was. It's a little hard to know like where his thoughts uh, begin and end. But it is fun. I, I so I agree with your point that uh, you can go back and pick things up on the second time. Um, so someone someone did suggest that you know you might be qualified to apply for Calico Labs' new like CTO position, and I was like, you know what, you might you might have the skills, but I. <laughs> But I think you have enough things going on. Uh, so uh, I'll, uh, I know we're going over. So then I'll um, just, uh, I'll think of some books that would be good for you and I'll send them to you. But then, uh, so this was the Learn With All show. I suck at outros. So I do this together. I just want to thank you so much for coming back on the show. Uh, this was great. Um, and thanks so much for taking so much of your time, given like everything you got going on in your day. Well, this is very important to, to have a conversation with a broad set of voices that can, um, feedback to to through you uh, so i think uh happy to do it